The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight's the uh, last night that I'll be speaking on compassion and I'll actually be gone next Wednesday. I'll be out of town on retreat out in California and Veronica Wedock will be speaking um, also on the general category of integrating practice in daily life. So just to sum up this um, practice of compassion and how we work with compassion in our daily lives. And uh, for those of you who have been coming to the talks this last year, since the winter, I've been using the Eightfold Path, a traditional model in Buddhism the Buddha introduced as a way of thinking about spiritual practice. And then, in this case, specifically about practicing in daily life as opposed to sitting down and meditating, which of course is part of daily life, but it's a specific part. So breaking or opening it up to include the whole day, all of our activities. And the Eightfold Path can more easily be thought of in terms of three aspects. The wisdom aspect, sila or ethical conduct, and samadhi or quieting, unifying the mind. So um, in terms of uh, integrating practice in our daily lives, I think we can use the same category. So we. In terms of compassion, it really fl- it's really in this wisdom category, surprisingly, maybe. And in a way, the wisdom category is the most potent in the sense that when we practice this way, the effects are direct. The whole path is about freedom, being free from fear, free from greed, free from aversion and confusion. So how is it that cultivating compassion does that, supports that freedom. And a long time ago, when I started talking about compassion, I mentioned the three unwholesome roots and the three wholesome roots. And this is part of the wisdom practice, is just understanding the difference between a wholesome mind state and an unwholesome mind state. Unwholesome mind states are just those mind states that create constriction in the heart. We feel weighed down or numb or separate, apart. We feel heavy. And wholesome mind states are mind states that lead to the experience of freedom or buoyancy. We feel alive. We feel connected. We feel open. We feel joy or the joy of generosity, of giving our life away. And so when the Buddha looked at his own mind, he saw that when there are unwholesome mind states, they have particular flavors, like the flavor of aversion. Aversion is an unwholesome mind state. When aversion is coloring our mind, then things tend to get heavier. We feel more apart, more separate, more reactive. When the mind is covered by greed or craving, when the mind is covered by delusion, not seeing things clearly as they are. So then the opposites of those are just the wholesome roots. 
So the opposite of greed would be generosity or simplicity or contentedness. The opposite of aversion is kindness or compassion. And the opposite of delusion is seeing clearly or wisdom. So this is really where compassion practice comes from. We're understanding that any way that we live our life, do our life, that promotes living out of the wholesome roots is wholesome, is a direct path, a direct expression of freedom, we could say. And in the same way, of course, if we live, on, live in a way that the unwholesome roots tend to dominate the mind, then we're practicing suffering, and we get really good at it. <laughs> so when we uh, take this practice up, this ongoing reflection on compassion, remember, it's a direct way of express, expressing freedom or happiness. It's not this heavy should, like we should be loving beings, we should be compassionate beings, I should care. That, to me, sounds more like a judgment, which is a form of aversion, being afraid of being uncaring. And then that's suffering. So the question is, well, how do we actually recognize these wholesome roots like generosity, like kindness, like compassion, and learn to live from them? How do we abandon the unwholesome roots? And usually, the nice thing about this path that the Buddha taught, almost always we can reduce the activity to one thing, which is the development of understanding. Like, what we have to do is understand, for example, what's in the way of compassion, or what's the hook for aversion. Like, how is it that we get identified with the aversion? Why do we keep returning to aversion with attachment? We get attached to our anger, to our self-righteousness, to the feeling of being a victim. <coughs> which is all separating, it's all heavy. So we look for the hook, what's the draw to the unwholesome roots, and what's in the way of the wholesome roots. And the Buddha sums it all up for us, which is really nice. He says the basic problem for all of this is that we're not seeing things clearly. So the fact that we keep returning to craving and aversion and delusion as a way of being in the world and avoiding the opposites, generosity or contentedness, and avoiding the opposite of aversion, which is kindness and compassion and gratitude and forgiveness, and avoiding the opposite of delusion, which is seeing things as they actually are with clarity, the reason for all this is that we're too distracted to notice how off we are. We're living a life that's so distracted that we don't realize that we're distracted. We don't realize that we're living, in a sense, inefficiently, ineffectively. So we just continue doing what we've always done, getting what we've always gotten. Nothing changes, really. We get bigger, 
you know, as we get older. <laughs> Not just taller, but <laughs> always we get bigger, psychically, physically. So then, then if the problem is we're too distracted, then the Buddha just calls that being ignorant, like not seeing clearly. So then the solution is always really simple. It's nice because it means the whole path is something that's not complicated. It's about seeing clearly. Or even that's a little too self-centered of a way of talking about it, like I have to see clearly. So another, maybe even a more appropriate way to talk about it that I've been using, especially in terms of teaching about compassion, is letting our life, letting the conditions of our life in. Letting the heart be touched by the conditions of our life. When I say conditions of our life, I don't mean just the external conditions, like who's around us, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, but especially the internal conditions. So instead of saying like, oh, we need to be really mindful of our mood, really mindful of our mind states, really mindful of our inner dialogue, which in a sense is very true. But that can be just another self-centered trip that we use to judge ourselves, you know. Oh, I'm not being mindful, so I'm bad. So instead, we can just say in this moment, can we be touched? Can we be undefended? Can we be radically present with how it is in the mind, how it is emotion in terms of the emotions, how it is in terms of the physical state here in the body, how it is in terms of the external conditions that we're aware of through the five senses, what we see, what we hear, what we smell and taste, what touches us physically, or in terms of our sense of touch. So we're we're learning to be vulnerable to these six gates, you know, the five physical senses and the mind, the thoughts, images in the mind, to be undefended, meaning to be receptive. And this means that we're seeing clearly. This means that we're intimate. And if we're actually intimate, if we're fully present, then life teaches us the appropriate lessons. So if we react to our conditions, our present moment conditions, with aversion or with greediness or with delusion, we'll notice very quickly the result being you know, that we suffer. Things get tight. We get stressed. We get confused. We make mistakes that come back to haunt us. So life has this wonderful way of being a good teacher but it requires that we show up, that we be undefended, present. If we're living through various thick filters, then the teachings of our life, the teachings of the conditions of our lives aren't very effective. In the same way, if, we're, if we have that sense of presence, being really open to the conditions of the mind, the body, conditions around us, then when we're living out of the three wholesome roots when we're living out of compassion or living out of contentedness and generosity and clarity then we just start to notice because we're there present we just start to notice how our life starts to work better we notice how 
the whole system seems to say the right words at the right time, it seems to keep quiet at those times when quiet, being quiet is the appropriate response, that the system is skillful and we start connecting life working better, happiness arising with these wholesome roots and we start to trust them more and more and we just in a sense orient around them so we change kind of the orbit you know right now we orbit around greed and aversion and delusion or if you don't like the word delusion which sort of has a negative connotation you can maybe use the word distractedness that's more neutral so we live with distractedness. I mean, think about what we do all day long to keep our mind distracted, busy. And so we just revolve. We, we trust being greedy, you know. We're always looking. Like, even we even come to Common Ground or to programs like this with a greedy mindset, like, I'm going to get something to fix myself. So it's just, uh, it's just what we trust now. A lot of the time, we trust our greediness in the mind. We trust the aversiveness, like what can we avoid? Like when we feel pain in the body, we trust this instinct that says, okay, move. You know, oh, why is that knee still hurting? And we trust distractedness, like when movement doesn't work and imagining being home in bed doesn't work, you know, we'll just have some fantasy to keep us from feeling what we're feeling. But if we pay attention, if we're really present, we see how stressful it is to stay distracted. How stressful it is to be wanting things to be other than they are. That's greediness. How stressful it is to be hating ourselves or another person. It takes a lot of psychic work to maintain those unwholesome roots. Just like it's so, when we're, when we're living out of the wholesome roots, the real taste that we're left with is how easy it is. The wholesome roots, in a sense, uh, the reason they're called wholesome roots is that they're not really things in and of themselves. It's like generosity and contentedness is the absence of craving. When there's no self-centered craving, we can call it something positive like generosity or contentedness, but it's really the natural state. It's the same with kindness and compassion. It's just the absence of self-centered aversion and fear. So it's no effort. There's nobody who has to be loving and compassionate. It's just the natural state when we're not revolving around some sense of self-centered fear, this idea of there's somebody who needs to be protected. So then the last few weeks in talking about compassion, I, I spoke a lot about just different ways to begin this practice, like to let life in. When we're formally sitting, that would mean that, you know, for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, we have this intention not to move or not to move too much or not to move intentionally. I mean, the body may adjust, but we're not intentionally seeking to get rid of our pain. We're just doing our best for whatever time, amount of time we're capable of doing this. You know, so in the beginning of maybe just 10 minutes before we need to make a mindful adjustment. But the idea is to practice 
working with the causes, the conditions that arise in our sit. But in our daily life, it's the same thing. We're in traffic. Instead of cultivating aversion to the traffic, feeling like that's the appropriate response to being stuck in traffic or being in a big city, we can cultivate kindness and forgiveness and contentedness and patience and compassion for the world and for ourselves. That's just another way. So we just let these normal difficulties, ordinary difficulties, touch us. We, in a sense, we breathe them in, and then we exhale some loving, kind, wise, generous response. We breathe in, we let things touch us, we exhale, we respond, not out of the unwholesome roots, but out of the wholesome roots. And this is really the practice. This is how we practice freedom in daily life. The key, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is is that when we do this, we're not doing it in order to be a generous human being or a kind human being or a good human being. We're doing this as a practice of freedom, a practice of joy, a practice of happiness. And it just so happens that people, we conventionally call that, oh, that person's being really kind and generous. There's a nice chapter in this collection of essays. Uh, It's called Voices of Insight. It's um, teachers, uh, Vipassana or insight meditation teachers in the West. So a lot of the teachers who teach at Spirit Rock and IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and Spirit Rock in California, where I'm going for my retreat on Thursday, tomorrow night. Um, and Rodney Smith, who's a well-known teacher, and he has a city group in Seattle, the, kind of the equivalent of Common Ground in Seattle. And uh, he also has a long career running the hospice or maybe even several hospices in the Seattle area after feeling he was living as a Buddhist monk. He's a Westerner, and he went to, I think, Thailand and practiced as a monk for a number of years and felt like something was getting a little dry as a monk. Not that it has to be, but for him, it wasn't the right path for him. So he didn't know really what his path should be, so he just knew he had to leave. So he came back and he spoke with Ram Das. Some of you probably have heard of Ram Das. He's a great uh, force for the uh, teachings in the West, uh, both the yoga teachings from his teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, but also later got quite involved in Vipassana practice. I don't know if people, a lot of people don't realize that he's done a lot of his practice at IMS, Ram Das has. Anyway, Rodney Smith spoke to Ram Das. I would just read this, this section because it's kind of funny. Around this time, I had a conversation about service with Ram Das. I'd always admired his understanding of engaged spirituality and looked forward to his advice. I told him I felt as if, my, if all my props had been removed and I was left with the imperative serve everyone, as Ram Das's guru often advised his students. The problem was that I had no idea how to do it. Serve everyone? There are too many people, and I did not feel up to the task. Ram Das told me very compassionately that he did not know how to do it either. <laughs> Somehow that helped. Okay, I thought, I'm on my own. 
with no role models, no mentors for the leap I'm about to take, that freed me up to be creative and to let the path unfold in my unique way, which eventually led to hospice work. And I think that's it's so important because if we have a plan of what it means to be a compassionate person or a good person or a wise person, guaranteed we're going to screw it up. And then we'll be disappointed. And the key is to understand the principle, which is to let our life in. And then to be really, that, that of course, that breathing in our life, the sort of being vulnerable to how it is for each of us in each moment, that allows for the natural response to arise. And this is like the basic aliveness. You know, it's so funny how, like, there's so many self-help books. I mean, I understand why there are, but it is funny. It's, I think it's useful to have a sense of humor about how many self-help books there are about how to live. <laughs> None of the other animals on this planet seem <laughs> to need instructions. But we seem to need a lot of instructions, and it's kind of funny. The more instructions we get, the more instructions we seem to need. And common ground kind of falls into that, too. So, you know, we have to, we were kind of laughing at ourselves to some degree, and that's okay. I think it's good. But there's a basic principle, and, you know, people have talked about this in different, using different words. But it's, it's really about letting our life in, and then notice what, where that feeling of aliveness, like how we're inspired to respond to our life, to the way that it is for us. Just see what's, what we're inspired to do. So in a way, we're allowing our life to be lived through us instead of like needing a plan, like who we are. And this is what we do as teenagers. The trouble is we don't stop. But, you know, as teenagers, we often want to know who we are. And then... As adults, we still want to know who we are, but we're afraid to admit it. <laughs> you know, because it's not cool as an adult to still be wondering who I am and who I should be and who I don't want to be. But, you know, we, what we hope is that we realize that that's the wrong question. It's like we discover who we are by letting our life in, and we find out who we are by how we respond to our life. So each moment we're letting our life in, each moment we're responding to the moment. And what really inspired uh, Rodney Smith, he stumbled upon a quote. I don't even know who this person is, Harold Thurman Whitman. Anybody know who he is? Somebody, a writer. And the, But the quote is quite nice, I think. And uh, so Rodney Smith put this in his essay. Do not ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. And then go and do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Isn't that nice? It's a little bit like, you know, this statement that Joseph Campbell made that's quite famous. It doesn't necessarily make sense until you read a little bit more of what he was saying. But uh, somewhere in that, I think in that interview series with Bill Moyers, he said, uh, follow your bliss. Remember that statement? Now, a lot of people in the self-help world might think, well, that just means doing what you want to do. 
But if you really look, you know, it's really about, in order to know what following our bliss means, we have to really allow ourselves to be touched by what is happening, what's in our mind, what's in our body, what's around us. And then the response flows from that. And so I'll just go through some of the the basic instructions, like, well, how, how can we do this? And I've already talked a little bit about this being touched by life. But the important point here is don't feel like you have to do something grand, like breathe in all of the poverty in the world. Just start with what's right in front of us. And that may lead to you doing something with poverty in a more international on a more international level. But just be touched by somebody you know losing their job. You know, really be open to the vulnerability to being present with that person who doesn't know what comes next for them, doesn't know where they're going to get insurance, doesn't know what to, what to do with their sense of self-esteem, having been fired or laid off or something. Just being with our own aging bodies, uh, for me, is such a wonderful teacher, you know, to kind of breathe that in. To feel like, to recognize that we don't know how long we have. And we don't know, not just in terms of life and death, but we don't even know how long we have in terms of health. It's amazing how we take health for granted until we get sick. I mean... Maybe some of you are sick now, but you know most of us today didn't appreciate the health we have. So we can breathe that in, and we can learn to respond with gratitude. You know that's when we breathe in the vitality of our body, when we feel vital, when we breathe that in, the natural response is gratitude. And it's not because we think we should be grateful for being healthy, like, oh, that per person she or he is sick, I should be grateful that I'm healthy. We just, if we notice the vitality of the body, we naturally will feel grateful and generous, wanting to do something with the time that we have, wanting to do something that's meaningful with the time that we have. Another aspect of this work of, of really letting life touch us is we have to go beyond this idea of good and bad. This is, you know, again, this is the part of the Eightfold Path that's called wisdom. So this is, this is a practice to learn not to be confused by this imprint we've all been given, in our, each of us in our own particular way, to see things in terms of good and bad. And we want to... Because we can't actually breathe in. We can't be touched if we're in the process of judging things or discriminating things into good and bad. It's just what it is. Everything is just what it is. So the traffic isn't good or bad. It's just what it is. And our reaction to the traffic, it also isn't good or bad. So even if we hate the fact that there's traffic, we breathe that in too. We let that in because it's like this now. So nothing is seen in terms of good and bad. It's just seen in terms of, well, this is how it is now. 
now our political leaders are making a mistake from my point of view and this is how it is we don't have to say that they're bad we can just see that this is how it is now and when we let that in when we let that touch our hearts then we'll respond so it doesn't mean being passive it doesn't mean giving up it just means that seeing things in terms of good and bad is extra it doesn't actually help us so we're not saying we're, that we're going to be deluded we are seeing things as they are but we assume we need to define it in order to be intimate but we don't need to de defining things actually keeps us from being intimate from being fully present with things so this is just about equanimity understanding that to be a wise loving compassionate human being we have to cultivate equanimity which means going beyond good and bad or going beyond um, uh, this idea that like of any agenda really so if we have an idea of how the world should turn out that gets then that's the same as good and bad because then anything that's in the way of the world turning out the way we think it should be that's bad anything that supports it is good so instead we need something right like well how do we live if we don't have good and bad well in a sense the stepping stone to to true equanimity deep equanimity is having the agenda of understanding wanting to understand things as they are that's good not understanding things is bad so that's our sort of last stance with good and bad <laughs> we're interested in understanding and anything in the way of understanding is bad <laughs> so even in Buddhism you know because spiritual teachings have to take us all along the path so in the beginning of the path the teachings have to be pretty dense because we're pretty dense and in the middle place in the path the teachings can be more subtle eventually the teachings are there are no more teachings <laughs> and any teachings any grasping for teachings at this point in the path is an obstacle even having sort of this idea that there's the right view is an obstacle you could call this you know radical trust at the very end of the path the only teaching is to radically trust things as they are but that's generally not where we are we may be there in a moment but then in the next moment maybe we're here or we're back here needing dense teachings so somewhere in the middle the subtle teaching is you get one attachment the attachment to understanding wanting to see things clearly and it's okay to be afraid of whatever gets in the way of seeing things clearly but there are moments when you'll be over here and and getting identified with fear of confusion or fear of making mistakes is actually in the way you can just trust that the system is going to make mistakes and that's okay that that's a more useful way to practice when you're over here and you need the teachings of no teachings but we're not often there but when we are there we just let life happen let the personality unfold and learn from it but here where I'm talking now in terms of equanimity learning trusting learning to trust equanimity to trust the going beyond good and bad is we just let good and bad 
only settle on wanting to understand clearly how it is and being wholesomely afraid, fearful, of getting distracted from that intention to understand. So that, that's often where we practice, right here. And that's in the direction of equanimity. Because then it doesn't matter. The other good and bads, positive and negatives, aren't so important. Because it's not about good and bad. It's just about understanding how it is. So when we're in traffic, it's not about whether it's good we're in traffic or bad that we're in traffic or whether it's my fault that I got a late start or not. It's just about understanding the nature of the moment, like how the mind is. Like, is the way the mind relating right now, is the way that the mind is relating right now wholesome or not? Is it leading to suffering or not? So we just want to understand how it is in terms of whether it's supporting happiness or supporting suffering. That's the only thing we gravitate around. That's our refuge at this point in the practice. Wanting to understand things in terms of am I gravitating towards suffering and stress or is the system gravitating towards release and happiness? That's what I mean by understanding. So we don't want to understand why is that car green you know, the understanding is specifically, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, the way the Buddha taught, suffering and its end. Like how suffering comes to be and how it can be abandoned. That's the understanding we're interested in. Because there are a lot of things we could try to understand. But, you know, so much in life is fascinating. That, at this point, is a distraction. Like wanting to understand, you know, how the Buddha came to his insights that can be a real distraction, keeping us from understanding how suffering is arising in my heart right now, how suffering is being let go of, how we're going beyond suffering right now. Another aspect of this practice is learning how to handle the sort of uh, necessity, the inevitability of responding to life so that it's not that uh, we stop responding, stop being engaged in life, but it's really, action is very confusing for us. So in, in terms of this daily life practice of cultivating wisdom, cultivating compassion, it's not just breathing in, being touched, understanding how it is. But then it's feeling the impulse to respond or react and trusting the wholesome intentions. Trusting meaning allowing them into action. So when we see the traffic, you know, we breathe that in, we feel what it's like, we don't turn it into good and bad, then we may be compelled to respond. Who knows how we'll respond? We might, you know, see the person next to us and just smile in a way that helps to relieve our tension and their tension. Or we might take the next exit and decide that I just as soon drive peacefully down the city streets instead of being on the interstate, even though it will take me longer. But the idea here is that we have to uh, it's like 
the system will know the, the creative response. But it's not that we figure it out. This is the interesting thing that we can learn to trust. When, we, when we're able to breathe in in this way where we're fully present, it means that all of the past, all of whatever we've learned from the past, and whatever information is here in the present moment, it means it's all right here in the present moment. And so then our response is going to include whatever wisdom, whatever information there is available. And it will be kind of an integrated response to the situation, because it's including everything. But if we try to predict the response or force a response to fit some idea, some expectation, then it's limiting. So one of the principles in terms of our engaging the world, responding, is a kind of humility. Like we don't really know, we can't really know how we're going to respond. All we know is what's happening. So all we can know is how we are responding. And then we let that in too. Because just because we started responding in this way doesn't mean we're going to continue responding in that way. Because as soon as we start responding, that experience itself gets fed back into the present moment, right? That's something that's being known. And if we start responding and the person we're talking to gives us a look that tells us we're not saying the right thing, then immediately the system just takes that in. So part of, I mean, this is almost the opposite of the way we get trained, where we, where we learn that we have to be really careful. I know that. Actually, I like the word careful, although I think we need to change it to now being full of care, because careful has kind of a tight feeling to it, like you better be careful, or you're being, or something like that. So, but the way to be full of care is to do the one thing, which is to be fully present. Because being fully present, and that includes this kind of humility, meaning we can't figure it out. We can't figure out how, we, how to be skillful. Or another way of saying it, the way we become skillful is we allow ourselves to be fully present, trust that presence to create, to sort of set in motion the most appropriate response, given what we know. So it doesn't mean it will be a perfect response. It just means it will be the most perfect response that can happen, given the causes and conditions of that moment. And see, we don't like this. It means living our life without a plan, right? Now, that doesn't mean plans won't be made. I mean, I made a plan to go on this retreat. But see, all of that can be the natural response to just paying attention, just being present. And this is an exhilarating way to live. You know, what I said before with that quote that Rodney Smith found very useful when he had come back from Thailand and was trying to figure out how to live his life, this idea of being alive. Because what we notice is life is bursting forth. Our response to life is just bursting forth. I have to do it. And I, not only I have to do it, but I have to do it right. That is such a way to, to feel like I have to be the person who does it right. Or I'm the person who's afraid of doing it wrong. Because remember this part of the path, it's about going beyond good and bad. 
and just learning. So we just keep showing up. So if we do end up going in a direction that's unskillful, immediately, as soon as we're aware that it's unskillful, immediately that begins to get incorporated in what we're going to do in the next moment, how we're going to respond in the next moment. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book. I can't remember if I read this quote last week. Her wonderful book on loving kindness. It's called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. Without the rigidity of concepts, right? So the humility is going beyond conceptual thinking. So she says, without the rigidity of concepts, the world becomes transparent and illuminated as though lit from within. With this understanding, the interconnectedness of all that lives becomes very clear. We see that nothing is stagnant, nothing is fully separate, that who we are, what we are, is intimately woven into the nature of life itself. Out of this sense of connection, love and compassion arise. And we can say that we just, we learn to deeply trust it, trust our life, trust this natural way of our life unfolding instead of feeling like we need a plan. So we can keep this in mind, you know, when we practice compassion. This idea that uh, compassion isn't a should, you know, we need to help the world. It isn't about that. It's about what makes us feel alive. It's about being intimate, really letting our life in and letting our... The, the generosity that we're talking about is the natural response from having been touched by our life. And for some people, it will be doing something grand like running for president or going overseas to help people less fortunate. But for other people, it's going to be really simple. Simple in the sense that maybe local, like right in front of you, like planting some flowers on the boulevard, or being a little bit more patient with your child, or with the person at work, or the people you know at the checkout line. That can be just a beautiful, as beautiful an activity, as healing of an activity for the world as, you know, discovering a cure for cancer or something else like that. So I'll leave it here so we have time to hear from one another. Maybe you have some thoughts from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group, how you've worked with your own life, how you've seen that naturalness of compassion or the naturalness of responding freely in the moment with humility, and how that has been skillful at times for you, or any questions that you might have about the practice, the talk. time that you've been able to 
noticing like the tendency to want to protect yourself, but instead you kind of relax. Instead of doing that old habit of protecting yourself or removing yourself psychically or physically from the situation, you just kind of relaxed with it. You let it in. And you just noticed kind of skillfulness. Maybe that was surprising and uh, a cause for happiness. Or the opposite. <laughs> we learn from each other's mistakes, too. Please say your name again for everyone. Jen. Jen. Um, I was walking a friend's child and my child somewhere, and just, well, my own child. What are you teaching? My own child. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But this other child was particularly sort of grating, grating on my nerves, and I just and I stopped. Like I have a friend who calls that popping. You know, it's like we, we get stuck in a reactive mode. And then the one fortunate things about those reactive patterns is they're, they're heavy, they hurt, and they tend to wake us up. And in your case, you know, you stop, you got woken up by the pain of resisting this person, resisting letting her in. And so you stop. And, it's, and that's what did it. It's the stopping, you know. As soon as we see, as soon as we stop, we see how unproductive resistance is. And so it just pops. We just let go. Nobody consciously does something that causes suffering. We just do it unconsciously. So as soon as we're conscious how that pattern is, is creating more stress, it falls away. And then you notice that life started to work better. Thanks, Jen. Other thoughts people have? <laughs> Dave. Yeah, a little louder because there's some people in the back here. When you were talking about greed, uh, and even how sometimes practice can become uh, a form of greed, like we show up here to get something for ourselves. I really thought about that. And I know for me, when I first started practicing, a lot of anxiety that I had around the sitting was just feeling like nope, I wasn't like anybody or nobody understood me and that's kind of what caused a lot of my anxiety my whole life and you had mentioned the technique to use 
yourself by wishing something for others. You know, somebody once told me you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. <laughs> Just things like that. And when I can get out of myself, even in practice, which is kind of something I do for myself, but by wishing that for other people, it really kind of changes the thinking around. So I just wanted to... And then I was going to ask, is there any other techniques? Like... <laughs> What do you need more? <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, and, and, and you know, one thing that I think is true is that some of, those, some of those techniques will arise naturally by asking the right question or by, even better than asking the right question, learn practice. And the correction or the new addition will just, might just arise intuitively. And you can always check it out with someone who's been practicing longer, you know, or a teacher or something. But you'll be surprised how things tend to show up either in, in your own mind or the teacher shows up at your doorstep, so to speak. You know, the right book, the right tape talk, you know, the Kamagam, person speaking at Kamagam just happens to say something that's just right on what, what you need to hear given where you're at. So th there is a certain synchronicity, synchronicity if we're doing our part, which is to be really clear about what's in the way, or really clear about what's going on. Because the more we get really clear, see, there, there's a basic principle that the tangle itself knows how to do the untangling. So the more we get intimate, allow the heart to be intimate with the tangle, with the difficulty, whether it's something external like difficulty with our parent or some old pain that's coming to the surface in the heart and mind. If we get intimate with it, generally speaking, I think if we're patient enough, the untangling happens just through the intimacy. And we might be able to articulate how we practiced with it in a way that other people could use, but maybe not. Maybe we can't even understand like how we did it. But it because we, in a sense we didn't do it. It did it itself. It was just being present with the tangle that caused the untangling. But sometimes more obvious things happen, like somebody appears in our life and they say, do this, and it's just the ticket, you know? That happens sometimes. I'm sure it's happened to people here. Thanks for all your comments, Dave. I thought they were just great sharing. Maybe time for one more or two more other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it, I forget now, is it Jeremy? Dennis, sorry, Dennis. Yeah, thanks so much. And you know, that is such an important point. There, there are uh, sources of wholesome joy, and there's nothing wrong with attending to them. And when we attend to those places of wholesome joy, it grows. That's called being wise. <laughs> but it's true, we're a little afraid of it, you know. But, yeah, there's a great story in the suttas of the Buddha having that realization and it really shifted his practice. This is before his big insight under the Bodhi tree where he, he remembered a time as a little boy 
where he had just sort of tapped into some of that basic natural joy of absorption of the mind being really fully present. And uh, he asked himself, he, uh, this question arose in his mind, should I be afraid of this joy? And then the answer arose, no, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is wholesome joy. And so he cultivated that joy, really helped settle the mind and create the kind of uh, spacious, relaxed, open mind state that allows for insight to come. Thanks, Dennis. Any other comments? Rick. Well, just kind of a quick question. Um, I've noticed in my life certain kinds of situations that, you know, it could be sort of like a crisis situation. You know, without going into details, just where it's like everything slows down. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about it. It's like I don't feel like I'm doing that. Yeah. Oh, I'm slowing down and paying attention, but you know, it's like, this just happening. Yeah. Uh, I was in a car crash once, and spinning around, and it's like, it was, just, you know, it was an earthquake once. I was in, you know, several times where it's, yeah. you know, like, death staring me in the face, you know. Yeah. And suddenly there was this calm. It was just, everything was really yeah. strange. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I bet, I bet there are a lot of people in the room who've had similar experiences. Well, the question isn't so much like, why does that happen? But maybe a better way to ask that question is, why? what's in the way of that happening all the time? Because maybe we could say that, in that case, the shock of whatever was going on, like the car accident or the earthquake, it was such a surprise, and so much didn't fit, your expectation that the the kind of habits of thinking, you know, that inner dialogue explaining your life to yourself as you're living, it was so shocked that it was silent for a while. And so then it was just conditions being known. And when conditions are being known, there is this sort of timeless quality. Like when you no matter the spiritual tradition, if you ask people who've had mystical experiences, they always point to the timelessness of those of those moments. Like that, that it's it's like they last forever, even though it was just a few seconds. People always say things like that. Yeah, and so I think that's what it is. It's just the absence of the mind being diluted by conceptual thinking. And then when the mind is free of that conceptual thinking to a large degree at least, then it is, it's a different reality. It is a different reality. We just don't know it because the pervasiveness of that habit of talking to ourselves, explaining our life to ourselves as we're living our life, that extra thing, it's always happening or almost always happening. And then when it doesn't happen, we have these what seem like unusual experiences and even though they're kind of tragic, at least the car accident, and maybe the earthquake too, they we kind of hold them like, wow, they're sort of like sacred experiences. I'm sure people who here who've given birth maybe had a few moments in that where there is that, a little bit of that, or people uh, around somebody who's dying too. Whatever sort of stops the mind. Mm-hmm. Let's leave it here and just take a couple breaths together, let go of the words.
settling into the experience of being here together and appreciating the wholesomeness of having gotten ourselves here, the wholesomeness of just being here together, reflecting on these ancient and really practical teachings that have been generously passed down generation by generation. And we can also be grateful for this very natural aspiration to do something with these teachings, to take care of ourselves and to take care of all beings by cultivating this full, open heart that meets life fearlessly, tenderly, and then just responds from that open, loving connection just trusting the natural response, learning from the natural response, willing to feel alive in our lives as they already are, not how we want them to be, but trusting our lives as they actually are already. So this is our aspiration. May it be a cause for happiness in all directions, May all beings live with ease, free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thanks for your comments, questions. I have a couple announcements for the group. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.